This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Richard Flanagan, welcome to Better Reading. Lovely to be here, Cheryl. I can't tell you how excited I've been to uh, speak with you today. It has just been, it's one of those things like, you know, when you wake up early in the morning and you think, do you know that moment when you wake up and you think, what's my day going to be like? That was the moment for me this morning. I woke up, "Mm, hum, hum. And then I thought, oh, Richard Flanagan, not hum, hum. (laughs) So that's how my day started. Well, you're a wonderful flatterer, Cheryl, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and it, it will get you everywhere, I can promise you, you know. Well, if you listen to my podcast, you'd know I don't say that to everybody. Okay, so the man needs no introduction, but I am going to have a go. Richard is considered by many to be the finest Australian novelist of his generation. Published in 42 countries, each of his novels has attracted major praise and received numerous awards and honours. He won the Booker Prize for The Narrow Road to the Deep North and the Commonwealth Prize for Gould's Book of Fish. His latest novel, The Living Sea of Waking Dreams, is an ember storm of a novel about hope and love and orange-bellied parrots. Richard lives with his family in Tasmania, where a rapid on the Franklin River is named after him. Now, I finished reading it last night and um, Richard, I mean, it is the most beautiful book. I I think I enjoyed every word, every sentence and, of course, the beautiful layered storyline. And in light of preparing for my podcast with you today, I decided to write down some of the sentences when I started reading it because they were so beautiful I thought we can discuss them. But what I found myself doing (laughs) is transcribing the book because it was one beautiful sentence after another. Oh, that's a lovely thing to say, Cheryl. I must say I I do that with books. I I start writing out lines and and it helps me have an anchor in the sort of ocean of the book and I return to them and and I start getting a sense of the, the rhythm and the music of the of the actual novel, I always think novels are actually, in the end, musical in their composition. You know, they they um, they have they're very abstractly arranged, but they're arranged um, to create certain effects which are ultimately beyond what we think of as story or character. Sort of deeply spiritual and emotional effects. They are emotions and moods and tones of our soul that that we're seeking, that I think books seek to communicate. I've heard people talking about this book already and I've, I've read some of the reviews and I've, I've watched some of your interview, well, the, the one namely last night with Lee Sales. And for me, it's not a book about one subject. It's actually a story first and then there's so many layers beneath it. 
And like all stories or like all good stories, you read it and you get from it where you're at in your own life. Would you agree with that? Oh, well, I think that's that's a reader's judgment. I, I mean, all I can say is that it began as several separate things, but they were all somehow one thing. And I guess living in Tasmania, I've become very conscious that many beautiful things, wondrous, extraordinary things, animals, birds, fish, even places that I love, well, I, I guess were on the verge of vanishing. And I, I suddenly realised my grandchildren would never know them. But just near my house here, they're, they're swift parrots. You know, there's probably about 500 of them left. They'll be gone within a decade or two. Um, where I write on Bruny Island, they're 40-spot partilates. They've maybe got another decade left. There's a few hundred of them left. A few bays from where I'm sitting, the first fish in modern history was declared extinct two months ago. Beaches are vanishing, rainforests are burning, and I, I guess I suddenly understood we were living in the autumn of things. Mm. And everyone went on as though these things weren't happening. The world was vanishing. And if you pointed out to them, they pointed to their phones. It might be sad, but it was as if it didn't affect them. And, that, and then about two years ago, the Tasmanian fires came, and these were very different from any fires we'd had in the past. They began in our rainforest, which never burnt, and then they just kept on burning. They, they didn't last a week and then largely subsided. These just kept on for month after month. And, and really what was happening was a terrifying harbinger of what would happen on mainland Australia a year later. And I'd actually written another novel, which I was seeking to finish. I'd spent about a year and a half on it. And at the height of the fires, I felt this scream building up within me because no matter how I tried, I couldn't talk about the things. I couldn't express the things that I wanted to express. I couldn't give tongue to this scream and this novel I was, you know, seeking to write. And I guess I was seeking a, a, a language that, and I think this is a challenge for many writers, many artists at the moment, to find a language that equals this enormous loss we're experiencing, mm. but which also speaks of possibility of hope. Well, I, I, just to finish the story, I, I, um, I went to visit two old, very dear friends, and they, they were lighthouse keepers on a remote island off Tasmania. There was just them on this empty island called Matsyker Island. Very wild, very rugged, very beautiful. I was um, 18 hours on a crayfish boat getting there violently almost of the time. And then I got on this most beautiful, windswept, densely wooded island full of mutton birds. I think there are a million mutton birds. It's only a few square miles and um, seals and just this thudding, shrieking wind. And I, I sat and... Each morning I'd go to this little weather observation hut that looked out over this incredible wild sea and I went there to work on this novel but immediately something else began spilling out of me and while I was there um, I wrote what would become the first chapter of this novel, The Living Sea of Waking Dreams and it was about I'd had this story, I'd, I'd had this idea for a fable that there'd be a woman who started losing body parts. She'd lose 
a finger, an ear, a knee, a breast, and, and at each point as she lost something, no one would notice. And the more things she lost, still no one would notice. And then she would begin noticing that things were vanishing from their faces and their bodies, and nobody spoke about that too. And that was a sort of absurd story. But but I realised that to convey the the reality we live in now, you needed something as absurd as that tale. But because it's comic, I, I needed to, and absurd, I wanted to root it in something real and concrete to make it plausible. And that's where the second element of the story came in, where this woman would be watching her mother die and along with the brothers and sisters seeking to prevent her mother dying. So that was the, the second element of the story. And the third element was by really mid-autumn of 2019, it was very clear to me, as it was to so many people, that an apocalyptic summer would be bearing down on Australia in 2019, 2020. And so I decided to try and finish a rough draft of the novel, to have it all sketched out, by the summer or what was our last summer, and then I would rewrite the whole novel in real time, letting the events of that summer feed into it and drive its mood, its emotion, and to some extent its story. And that's what I did. And and so the fires became uh, this other element, uh, really another character in the novel. And it was... I let that drive a lot of the, uh, even a lot of the story. So that's, that for me, so that's a very long answer to a short question. Did I think the novels about the things you mentioned? And I said, I don't know, but they are the stories that I use to make the novel. But the story is the layers of the story. Yes, there are fires, there is the environment, there's social media, there's, uh, and I'm sure you were thinking this when you, you were writing it, that, that how desperately those children tried to keep their mother alive, yet everything was dying around us. And Also, I, I, I mean, my daughter, um, one of my daughters told me this amazing story one night. She works in the medical system. And uh, at her hospital, uh, an old man who was dying had been brought in, but his family wouldn't let him die. He wanted to die. The doctors um, felt there was nothing more that could be done. But his family refused to let him die because it, it offended their sense of their power and their privilege. And they used all that power and privilege, all that wealth, all that influence, to stop their father from dying. But it didn't enable their father to live. He just entered a strange stasis of a certain type of living death. And I thought how we no longer know how to die and perhaps it's because we no longer know how to live. And it intrigued me why children would, in pursuit of a perverted idea of love, condemn the people they love the most to that sort of hell. I thought it was a particular hell for her. I mean, it was extreme what they were doing. You know, as I said, books are very personal and stories are personal and 
my mother hasn't hasn't been very well at the moment so you know it really hit home for me there was it was deeply emotional but when you've got siblings and there's a lot of you i think that you just captured that there's everybody's reaction is unique and everyone's reaction is theirs and their emotional response is theirs and uh, kind of work through that i think is really difficult and i think you presented that so well and at the same time, I mean, what I particularly love, because I have been through this, is when doctors are explaining <laughs> what was happening, it actually is a puzzle and you nailed it. You can never really work out exactly what they're saying because they don't say anything directly. No, in the novel, uh, they, they chant little mantras and yeah. uh, he said, he said, she said, he, he, he asked, she said, which is how um, these things come to you in the hospital. Um, in fact, what happens in a modern medical system, I think, and I, there, there are beautiful people working within it, great people, but the system as a whole tends to fragment the idea of people's bodies to the point where each person's just taken responsibility for the, the vascular system or the cardiothoracic system or whatever and no one's thinking about the human being as a whole and people speak from the height of their immense uh, expertise but they sometimes don't know how to convey and perhaps sometimes have lost the ability to comprehend what actually is happening to that person or that human being in front of them and it's not for lack of goodwill or decency it's just a a fragmented system um, which we're all culpable when creating. Uh, I, I, when you were talking about family, uh, my family is very, uh, like it sounds, your family is, it's very clannish, it's large, I'm one of six children. The family in this is slightly different. Two of the, there's three siblings and two of them are actually in retreat from the idea of family. They're seeking to live, I guess, a neoliberal life where you're liberated by money and success into living alone as an individual. And two of them have met with great success in those purely materialistic terms. But there's an absence and um, their mother's terminal illness is a moment when not just they are tested, but all these values which they've been told by society of what really matters are also tested. And Anna, the character in the centre, the woman at the centre, she discovers that none of these values perhaps mean anything to her. And when she looks at a mother who she's always dismissed as having led a, a wasted life, she senses that somehow in in an oppressive world, she fashioned a, a space of freedom for herself. And it, it, strike, it, it is completely paradoxical for the successful career daughter to understand how that was possible. I don't know how to describe this, but when I have followed authors like yourself, um, many authors that I love reading, and you know, they started writing 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever. And I felt with reading this book, The Living Sea of Waking Dreams, is that in a sense, I could pick up the ageing of us in it, that the issues of ageing, not just old age, not just Francie, but Anna. And I thought in reading it as a reader, it resonated so much for me. 
But as a writer, for you, it's kind of writing where you're at. Does that make sense? Well, it does, but I wouldn't see myself as that sort of writer. I mean, I've often written about people much older than me. I've sometimes written about people quite a bit younger. In this case, the central character, I was interested in writing about middle-aged women and elderly women Mm. because both in this age of vanishings, they're also something we don't see and we don't respect, you know, and even this new wave feminism, which is doing so much, it's so good, but one of its Achilles heel is that it's not really interested in the experience of older women. And yet uh, I grew up in a, the family I grew up in was deeply matriarchal, so you were brought up in a place where women were actually revered and older women in particular were revered and I, I've been going out into remote indigenous communities the last few years and I'm always struck when I'm out there how respected older people are particularly how respected the older women are and people go to them as a repository of uh, stories knowledge community wisdom healing and I thought all the things that we now need so much in our in our world that's absent from it actually resides with these people who we we seek to vanish a strange and cruel thing that we do not just to those people but to ourselves so i I was concerned to actually really foreground these people who too little attention is paid to and particularly in literature there's you know they don't tend to get written about that much because the icons, you know, even through social media and everything else, print, painting, art, it's always young women. The beauty is about, you know, the young female body or the young female. I mean, it's about sexualization as well, I guess. Well, it's, um, it's about tropes of physical beauty as youth, isn't it? And um, Yeah. Which is both the beauty is a very, that idea of physical beauty is a, a narrow idea and then reducing it down further to the idea of youth is even narrower. You know, that there is beauty in youth, but there's beauty in age too. Uh, we've just, I, I think there's, um, as I said earlier, we, we've lost the art of, uh, of gratitude for what is. We live in terror of who we are and what becomes of us rather than having a gratitude for each thing that comes to us. And and if we could look at life, if we rediscovered the capacity to show a grateful wonder for what we have, I think we would find a better way of living with each other. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I kind of thought that was an interesting point too, because reading it now during COVID has had another meaning, I think, for me as well, because my world did get smaller. I'm living smaller than I was six months ago. And it was interesting, like all of us, you know, you, you see the environmental decline of, of our beautiful earth and you feel powerless. You know, I often feel powerless and I, I find it, like a lot of people, depressing and sometimes I have to block it out and I look at the political situation in the world and I think, oh, God, I can't do this today. You know, I have to block it out. And what I have learned to do, when COVID hit, the first couple of weeks were really tough. I really struggled with it because I lost my social network and, and so did everybody else. Uh, for me particularly, it was around food. I always, as you know, I, I like to cook and I like to entertain. I like to have people over for a great conversation and good food and wine. And I lost that. And then I lost the joy of cooking and I lost the joy of food and, and I didn't drink any wine for weeks. But when I came out of it, I started to think about how I can make this better. And I think living small, and I think the book touches on that a bit, living small, I think, is our only coping mechanism. Well, I, I, I don't know how you found it, Cheryl, but, I mean, did you find an unexpected tenderness around people during this year, during the pandemic? Because Absolutely. That's what I've noticed, how, that people seem much kinder and mm-hmm. more conscious of, how their friends, their family, their neighbour is, that, that it is as if everyone's paying attention once more to what they have. It's sort of, it, it struck me enormously, you know, that this, for all the horror of it, and I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, to gloss over all that's terrible about, about it for so many people, but there is a beautiful kindness and gentleness. And, and I find... Uh, I found in myself a renewed attention to the beauty of the world and I feel this sense of wonder just to feel wind on my face or to feel the seasons roll by, the company of friends. All these things have become a lot dearer to me and I think to a lot of people I know. And I've become more astonished by these things and I think it's beautiful and I find in that truth, in in the truth of that beauty, a form of hope. I mean, if you look at power, if you look at politics, well, that's always a compass for despair. But if you look at people around you and the goodness they show each other, I think that's an enormous source of strength and hope. Mm. I mean, despair is rational, but hope is human and it is the essence of what we are as human beings. And I, I wanted to write this book, although it is about, it touches on many of the things that, concern so many people today, uh, I wanted to write it in a, in, in a spirit of hope and a spirit of grateful wonder. I, I wanted these things to be, I wanted to have that tenderness in every sentence. Oh, it's got that. It's got that in spades. I felt that it's particularly tender novel and the story is particularly tender. But again, I would say that the story is small, yet it has huge, large undercurrents. Well, I, I mean, um, the novel since Don Quixote has been about the everyday things too easily dismissed as everyday, mm. and which when we step back from them, well, with 
Don Quixote tragic comic with others dramatic with others tragic with others erotic with others romantic and so on but it is always it is the most democratic of art forms precisely because it's rooted in earth and sweat and blood and you know mm. it, it's deeply rooted in individual human experience so I'm not sure if we talked about this earlier, but COVID has had so many implications on people. But one of the things that I have noticed through better reading and through our community is that people have taken or found solace in reading. And if you like, I'm going to say that there's been the revival of the story. Do you think that that's happening? Um, Well, I, I don't know about that, but there's certainly been a huge lift in uh, the popularity of books I did an interview the other day with Michael Williams and uh, we were talking about how authors can't tour anymore and I said perhaps books have become popular because people don't have to meet the writers anymore. I don't think that's true. I think it shows that the story is everlasting. Well, I mean, that we need story, you know, because it's, it's, it's how we divine our universe. And, and in a time as absurd and as cracked as ours, the worst way of divining reality is through realism. You actually need strange fables to, to sort of tear the cataracts from your eyes so you can see the world anew for the strange and cracked place it is. So I, I think more than ever when times become very difficult to comprehend, story helps us. Story doesn't have any answers, and that's that, that's like a joke. A joke doesn't have any answers, but story, when it does its job properly, asks the correct questions, the questions that need to be asked at that time. Mm. The truth is, look, my books, um, they often have very slow starts because they're always different, and so often it's a couple of years and then they acquire uh, a sort of readership that loves them. Yeah. And you know what I love is that each book is different. I, you know, that there's not the expectation of the same. I mean, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way as well, because some people do same well as well. But for every book I read of yours, it's a total surprise of what it's going to be. It's like, had it not been for the signature writing, you wouldn't recognise that it's a Richard Flanagan book, if you know what I mean. I'm glad if you think that. I I mean, if it's not about change, Miles Davis said, it's not about anything. And I, I, I always admired those artists from Picasso to Miles Davis to Dylan who constantly changed. And once they made something beautiful in one form, went to another. And I think there's a powerful impetus, a powerful artistic reason for doing it, which is once you become comfortable in a certain form, a certain style, a certain structure, what was once a way of expressing truths becomes stale and and cheap. It becomes a lazy way of saying something and it ceases to express the truth and it starts becoming a lie. And so you have to go to a new form and start again and it forces you to think anew and see anew everything around you and once more find the exact words that might express that and the, and the ideas and the story that might express that truth properly once more so let me ask you this i mean i didn't 
put this book down and feel hopeless. You know, quite the opposite, actually. I, I felt a great sense of hope and there was, it was so much beauty in it. I felt optimistic as well. But if you do take some of the layers, if you do take, you know, where we're heading into it, towards climate change, you know, the political situation, the where we are right now, the US election looming, all those things that really can impact, could be a threat on democracy, all those things that could impact the way we live. How do you see us living? Of course, we're going to survive, but how do you see the short-term future? Well, I see it in two ways. I mean, I think I, I genuinely believe that we lived through a very unusual period, certainly in Australia, certainly in the West, over the last 50 years. And it was a period of stasis. And and in that stasis, it was progress. You know, it was economic progress. It was by and large social progress. But we're at the end of that time now. And, you know, the bushfires, um, COVID, what we're going into now is a series of rolling crises. We're going into an age of crises. And I I think this is actually what the reality has been for human beings for most of our history. Mostly human beings live in a much more tempestuous world where, you know, you can't decide at 20 to be something and still be it at 60 and think you can accrue a certain amount in superannuation and, and life will just work out. Most human beings over the whole history of our species have never lived like that. And I think we're going back we're not going back, you know. It is more the nature of this this world and this life for it to be that way. But within that, I think there's hope and I, I don't think we, of course, we must act to, to make a better world. But equally, we discover who we are when we're tested. You know, we discover both the, the, the strengths we didn't think we had and we discover the weaknesses and fragilities we have and that should remind us to be more forgiving and more generous to others when they show weakness and when they fail. Mm. So I, I, I think these things, you know, that, that there is good in them. And I, I also think we've just faced up to many things before. I remember going to, um, what's the, uh, the writer's house up in the Blue Mountains? Varuna. And I went there to give a talk and, uh, to editors and I was shown around Varuna by whoever the caretaker was. And, and in each room, there was, um, there'd be a portrait of this rather forbidding-looking woman looking down. And, of course, Varuna was originally the, the property of Eleanor Dark, who was um, a very important writer back in the 30s and 40s and early 50s. And Varuna had been, a, you know, her home. And um, I, said, I said, who's this very severe-looking woman? And they said, oh, that's... Eleanor Dark, she was very concerned about the world. And I thought, well, she was right to be concerned about the world, but, you know, there's also a lot of joy and happiness in the world and and we're still here and she didn't need to be as worried as she was perhaps, you know. And I thought I don't want to be that severe person looking down from a wall when I'm gone. No, you don't want to be that. Do you know sometimes I think, and, and you might think the same, sometimes I... Look, you know, and you've got children and you look at that generation and you think, what have we done? What have we done to them? I think that sometimes I think, oh God, what have we left them? But then other times when I'm with them and, you know, I hear them talk and I see them interact and I think they give me so much hope and joy for the future as well, because they're smart and because hopefully they'll right the wrongs, won't they? 
Well, they, they will and they'll commit more wrongs. Um, they'll, they'll do both things. But, uh, yeah, I, do, I don't feel overwhelmed with horror when I see my children. I, like, no. like, I, I feel the joy. I mean, what returns to me when I see my daughters are all, I have three daughters and they're all adults, that when we all get together, they remind me how extraordinary life is, how joyful it is, how special it is. And as you get older, I mean, your teeth, your bones, your everything goes on you. But And I think what also goes on you is that keen sense of wonder you have as a child when you when the, you look at the sky and it is so blue, it hurts your eyes. When you tumble over that first wave at the beach and you taste the salt and it, 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 it amazes you. Uh, when you feel wind on your face. I mean, all these things are extraordinary. When you see the green of ferns for the first time, when you see leaves move for the first time, and young people are still close enough to that sense of having been born into Eden and having witnessed it for the first time to retain that sense of wonder, and they remind older people of it. And I think that's an extraordinary gift they give I agree with you totally. I mean, I, I look after on a Monday, I pick up my great nephew from school every Monday. I used to do both, but one's gone to high school now. And it is my favorite day of the week because every time I see him, there is a level of optimism and joy because they live in that moment, don't they? Yeah, they do. Some people retain it. My, my mother's passed on, but um, when she was dying, her death was... I mean, I drew on some aspects of her life for the Frank, the, the old lady character in the book, but yeah, her, her death was utterly different because she was 95 and she was ready to go and she was three days in the dying and all these people gathered. It was extraordinary. There were always 30 to 50 people in the bedroom and the hall outside and each had sort of make their way through the, you know, this yeah. crammed little room to, to my mother's face because you had to get very close and low to speak to her because she, she had so little breath by then. And um, her mind was, you know, also starting to come and go. But when she saw each person, she was utterly there for them and she would say something beautiful and opposite to each one. And at the end of those three days... Her final words were, with a smile, she said, thank you all for coming. I've had a lovely time. They oh. were her last words. And I, um, I realised, I mean, it will sound a very strange thing, but it is in this case true. Her, her death was one of the most affecting and beautiful things I've ever seen. And I learnt from her, uh, it was like a final gift that you can die well. You know, it's mm. possible to die well if you face it with that sort of joy and wonder and courage to the end, which is what she did. It's a beautiful story. <laughs> I love that. So, Richard, before we go, I just would like you to read me. I can't say your favourite, but perhaps read me one or two lines from the book. All right, Cheryl. Um, well, I don't, I don't know what is my favourite, but I did like this one. There is so much beauty in this world, Francie said, as if astonished by a discovery that had taken an entire life to be revealed. And yet, she said, we never see it until it is too late. And here's a second one, which is a 
few lines. Without reason or thought, Lisa Shan slowly got to her knees, sinking slightly in the mud, and bowing her head, she waited for that moment when the universe might vibrate in and out and through her, that universe which she understood as her also, that immense gift, the intense gratitude, the power of the woman in the world, the power of the world in the woman. She was kneeling, waiting. She was ready. She was, she realised with amazement, not downcast, nor defeated. Well, that <laughs> that gives our listeners a taste of this beautiful book. Richard Flanagan, what can I say? Always an absolute pleasure, privilege. I can't think of the words, but it's it's extraordinary book. I love your writing. I always have. And congratulations. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. It's been lovely talking with you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.